We're in a class on Sunday nights, a discovery class, learning how to interpret Scripture. What tools we might be able to put in your toolbox so you'll be able better to understand the Word of God. If you're trying to just cut a two-by-four straight, a chop saw will do. If you've got intricate skull work to cut out, you need a jigsaw to get it to curve and go. There's only one universal tool, and that's duct tape. You know that. Besides that, you need to get the right tool. And so we're trying to give you a set of tools to use the right way to interpret the different kinds of Scripture. We began last week by looking at different types of Scripture. The actual word is genres, or different types of Scripture we find in the Old Testament. Quickly, we covered two last week. I will review them in just a few moments here. The first one was the Old Testament law. We had two kinds of law, the if-then law. If men quarrel and one hits the other with a stone or with his fist, he does not die but is confined to a bed, then the one who struck the blow will not be held responsible if the other gets up and walks around outside with his staff. However, he must pay the injured man for the loss of his time and see that he is completely healed. If you do this, then that. Exodus, Leviticus, a lot of if-then kinds of law. And then we had the absolute laws. Thou shalt honor your father and your mother, or thou shalt not steal, or thou shalt not kill. That is absolute law. Law, if-then law, and absolute law. Well, how do we interpret the law today as believers in Christ Jesus? Now that we are followers of Christ, do we just forget the 613 laws of the old text the word is no christ didn't come to abolish the law he said not one dot over an i and not one cross over a t not one jot or tittle but rather i have come to fulfill the law in fact the more we know about christ the more we know the purpose of the law i didn't come to abolish them that we are reminded as these laws of sacrifice that once we trust Christ as our once and for all sacrifice, then we realize that, well, we don't any longer have to actually bring the sheep and the goats into the temple, but rather we follow the real Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The other major type, law, if then law, absolute law, was narrative. And I told you that 75% of the Bible is the Old Testament, and of that, 40% of the Old Testament, that's a lot, is this type of genre, literature, and that is a narrative. And there are different kinds of narrative that we might look at. One of them is the list. You got a little bit of that this morning, but that would be in the Old Testament. There are lots of lists there. But we have the heroic narrative. We learn about the birth, the marriage, the life work of a hero, much like we might learn about Moses and Exodus or Deuteronomy, but, or, or Samson would be a hero. Now, don't think that heroes only do good things. We learn as much from the disobedience of heroes as we do from their obedience, do we not? Samson's not really a model to follow in a lot of things, but he's still a hero in the narrative sense that we learn much from the character of Samson. 
And then amongst these hero stories, the, the largest of all is the epic story where the character begins to represent the people of God so much that someone like Abraham, well, Abraham's life relates to ancient Israel in so many ways, and Abraham is blessed, and God's people are blessed, and even the divine ones walk with Abraham and talk with Abraham, and we know much about Abraham. And then there were some prophet stories like Daniel and Daniel 1 and 6. While we're interpreting these things, we need to look at the life of the main character. What do we learn from Moses? What do we learn from Daniel? We learn that God honors faithfulness and we should not cave into the culture and the cultural norms. What do we learn from these? What do we learn from the good things the heroes do? What do we learn from the mistakes or the disobedience that the heroes might show. Another type of narrative we looked at briefly was a comedy, and that doesn't mean it's funny. That means that things start in the wrong direction, and then they end up in a good direction. Well, for example, Joseph. We start out the story, and Joseph is wearing a coat of many colors, and he's bragging, and his brothers throw him in a pit, and they stain his coat of many colors with blood. They lie to his father. He's sold into slavery. He goes down to Egypt. Potiphar's wife screams rape when he's done nothing wrong but be, be obedient to Potiphar. And then he goes to prison. He interprets dreams. And at the end of the story... There is no grain anywhere in the known world except there is in Egypt because Joseph has rightly interpreted Pharaoh's dreams and told him seven years of plentiful, seven years of famine, store the grain, and here come the people of God looking for grain, and there are Joseph's brothers who've done him wrong. And Joseph says, you meant this for harm, but God used it for good. That's the comedy. When you read a comedy, you look at the development of a character. Joseph starts out as a braggadocious adolescent. He becomes an obedient follower, committed, arises to vice president of Egypt, and in the end, he's willing to forgive his brothers and see the providence of God. Esther being another model of that kind of comedy. Well, within the narrative, there are some little embedded types of literature that are with part of the narrative, like, for example, a proverb, a proverb. Well, turn to 1 Samuel, if you have a Bible. We're going to flip you around a little bit here in the Bible. If you turn to 1 Samuel chapter 10, a popular proverb can be embedded within a narrative. Here in 1 Samuel, we have the narrative, and this narrative here is about Saul, 1 Samuel chapter 10, and, and verse 12 we read. 1 Samuel chapter 10. Well, let's look, at, uh, let's look at verse 11. Chapter 10, verse 11. And it came about when all who knew him previously saw that he prophesied now the prophets, and the people said to one another, What has happened to the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? A man there answered and said, Now who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb, Is Saul among the prophets? A 
proverb within a narrative is a short little pithy saying. We might say something like this. Well, that's the way the ball bounces. That's a little pithy proverb. That's the way. We all know what that means. Something doesn't go your way. That's the way the ball bounces. Well, apparently in ancient Israel, these occasions where Saul begins to prophesy, gets overcome by the Spirit, means someone has uncharacteristic, unexpected behavior. And when Saul starts acting like a prophet, it became a saying, look what it says there in verse 12. These are introduced by something like, so it became a saying, or you know what they say? Saul is among the prophets meant you sometimes have uncharacteristic behavior found in people. The same thing happens. We won't turn to it for time's sake. In uh, 1 Samuel 19, 24, what do they say? Saul is among the prophets. So within the narratives, you have these little proverbs. There's another one, three, I'll put these together, riddles, fables, and parables of the narratives. Now, you think about what is a riddle. Turn back, you don't have to go far, turn back to Judges chapter 5. You probably know this riddle. You're probably familiar with the story of Samson and this riddle we have in Judges, Judges chapter 5. Look at uh, Judges, I think it's Judges 14. Judges 14, verses 5 through 14. Judges 14, 5 through 14. We have the story of Samson, and we have the riddle of, he says, out of the eater came something to eat, and out of the eater came something sweet. Look at Judges 14, 5. Now, Samson went down to Timnah with his father and his mother and came as far as the vineyards of Timnah. And behold, a young lion came roaring toward him, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily. So he tore them as one tears a, a goat, so he had nothing in his hand. But he didn't tell his father his mother what he had done. So he went down and talked to the woman, and she looked good to Samson. And when he turned later to take her, he turned aside and took the carcass of the lion. Behold, a swarm of bees and honey were in the body of the lion. So he scraped the honey with his hands and went on eating as it went. And when he came to his father and mother, he gave some to them and they ate it. But he did not tell them where it came from. Well, you know the story. Samson teases the Philistines and says, I've got a riddle for you. Look at verse 14. He said to them, out of the eater came something to eat. Now the strong came something sweet. The eater is the lion. And what's sweeter than honey, right? He didn't even tell his mom and dad. How would they know? Well, so he makes a bet with some Philistines and says, I'll tell you what. If you guys can answer my riddle, then I will buy you each a suit of clothes. But if you do not answer my riddle, then you have to buy me 30 suits of clothes. He'd be a well-dressed man. That would be the GQ level if Samson had 30 suits to put on. He said, you each buy me a suit, or I'll buy you all a custom suit. We'll get you the clothes, whoever answers it. And the, the men say, we're going to kill your family to the girl he's in love with. If you do not give us answer the riddle, and she gets it out of him, and well, the men of the city, verse 15, say, what is sweeter than honey, and what is stronger than a lion? A riddle in the larger narrative, the hero narrative of Samson. Sometimes you have a fable. It's presented as a fable. Turn back to Judges chapter 9. Judges chapter 9 and verse 8, you have an occasion with a fable. There's a, not a lot of these in Scripture, but there's a few of them. Judges 9, 8. 
Here we have a fable that tells us, Jotham tells us how the trees sought out a king, and they tried to get all the different kinds of trees to be a king, and the only one willing to serve was a thorn bush. What's that tell you? Well, it means Abimelech's not a good king. He's a thorn bush. Well, let's look at it. And Judges 9, 8 through 15. Once the trees went forth to anoint a king over them. Now, you know he's not telling you the trees are really looking for a king. You see, this is a fable. But the olive tree said to them, Shall I leave my fatness with which God and men are honored and go wave over the trees? Then the trees said to the fig tree, Hey, you come and reign over us. The fig tree said, Shall I leave my sweetness and good fruit and go wave over the trees? The tree said to the vine, You come and reign over us. But the vine said, Shall I leave my new wine, which cheers God and men and go wave over the trees? And finally, the tree said to the bramble, the thorn bush, You come and reign over us. And the bramble said to the trees, If in truth you are anointing me as king over you, come and take refuge in my shade. You see, the only thing they could get was a thorn bush. So we have that. We have, indeed, a fable. Sometimes in a narrative, we might have a parable turned to 2 Samuel. So these are within the greater style of the narrative. They're little things, these riddles, fables, and parables. But now we have a parable in 2 Samuel chapter 12. Now, let me say, when I say parable, you think of who? Rabbis. You think of one specific rabbi. When I say parable, you think of Rabbi Jesus, because Jesus loved to tell parables, did he not? And so you think about rabbis and parables and Jesus. Well, Nathan the prophet actually tells a parable in the narrative form of David. There's not many of these, but I want you to see that there are a few. Look at 2 Samuel 12, 1 through 4. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said, There are two men in one city, one rich and one poor. You follow the story? One city, two men, rich man, poor man. The rich man has a lot of flocks and a lot of herds. Poor man doesn't have anything but one little ewe lamb which he bought and nourished. They grew up together with him and his children. He would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom. Well, it was like a daughter to him. Think about your house dog. Um, not a cat. Cats aren't cuddly enough. Think about, think about your, your house dog. Maybe it's a little Yorkie you have or something. Or, but that dog is just like kind of one of the kids, and you, you fix the meals for the kids. You fix the meal for the dog. You know, the medical care, the dog, just, you know, it's right there with you. It might even get in your bed sometimes. I don't know. But a little kind of dog like that, the dog, lap dog right there, watches TV with you. This lamb was like the, the little Yorkie in the house. Think of that. And, well, now a traveler comes to the rich man. And the rich man says, I got I to gotta cook him up some lamb chops. You know, I got a grill. And he has all, all of these lambs, all these herds, herds on all the hills, he said, I don't want to lose one of my lambs. I go get the poor man and get his one little daughter lamb and cook her up. He goes, oh, that's, a, that's bad. That's bad. Look at verse 4. He was unwilling to take from his own flock or from his own herd to 
to prepare for his guest who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. David got angry. He's a king. He hears a story. He's hearing a parable. It's not a true story. It's a parable. David said, whoever did that ought to die. I think there's some silence after that. I think the prophet just is silent for a while. Yeah, David, probably so. And you are that man. You had a harem, many wives. And yet Uriah the Hittite had one wife, Bathsheba. And you took his wife, the wife of the poor man. Right there in the middle of this Davidic narrative, this narrative about David, we have this parable that rocks our world. Well, sometimes we have some songs. We have songs of victory turned to Exodus. Well, that should be easy to find, right? Genesis, Exodus, Exodus 15. They have just crossed over, and they're so excited, and Pharaoh's guys have followed them, and they have not done well in the river, and so they sing their victory song in Exodus 15. It is the song of the sea in Exodus 15. Let's start. We won't read the whole thing. We'll read a few verses. Then Moses and the sons of Israel sang this song to the Lord and said, I will sing to the Lord for he is mighty and exalted. The horse and his rider he's hurled into the sea. That's the Egyptians who are chasing God's people. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise him. My father's God and I will extol him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army. He has cast in the sea. The choicest of Pharaoh's officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deep overcomes them. And well, he, they sing. They, they sing right here in the narrative, this Moses narrative, you have a song. You have the song of Deborah. We won't turn to it for time's sake. In Judges 5, after the conquest over Jabin, didn't go well there. So we have a song Sometimes we have a funeral dirge, like, and we won't turn to it for time's sake, but in 2 Samuel, when Saul and Jonathan are killed, how, how have the mighty fallen? David sings a song, a funeral dirge. Oh, another kind of embedded type of genre we have in the bigger narrative is the list. And we have lots of lists. You know, we have, sometimes we have the list of all the, the confiscation of goods that Israel has made in conquering a land. Sometimes we have a list of votive offerings. Sometimes we have a list of cities and towns. You know, when you get assigned to read a passage, you know, you look and you see the list and you go, oh no, it's the Bible read through and I got the list. I was very kind to Corey this morning. He read the nice little benediction in the end. But there was a list there, 24 names in the list. Usually it's a genealogy. It's the most frequent kind 
of lives. Well, how do we interpret these embedded genres? First of all, look at them in the larger context. If you're looking at the parable that Nathan tells the story about the man with all the lambs and the one man, the poor man with the little daughter lamb, it's okay, but you need to read that in the larger narrative of David's sin. What he's done with Bathsheba, what he's done to Uriah, having him murdered on the the front lines. Look at the larger context of the embedded piece. How does this piece contribute to the message as a whole? Embedded, embedded genres in the narrative. Well, let's go to big kind. We have law, we have narratives. Now, another really big kind we have is poetry. We have a lot of poetry. And amongst this poetry, we have a lot of prayers. Now, the number one kind of psalm, the number one kind of psalm is, anybody know? It, it's, you ever read the psalms and go, it's just people complaining. <laughs> the number one psalm is, they call it a complaint psalm. It sounds better if you say lament. It doesn't sound so bad if you call it a lament. But you know, the reality is sometimes when we worship, we want all of our songs to be happy. We don't always feel happy, do we? In ancient Israel, sang complaints and laments, God, I needed you and you weren't there. And God, my daughter got sick and you didn't show up. And God, my enemy was overcoming me. And God, I had the war and we are losing. And this lament psalm. And so sometimes when we're going through a pandemic, is it okay to lament toward God? Well, you bet it is. The lament, the number one kind of poetry in the Psalter is the individual lament. Another big group is a community lament. So you have an individual lament when someone has a severe illness. They have a misfortune come to their family. They are falsely accused of something. But the whole community laments when they have a COVID virus, a plague. When they have an invasion by an enemy. Well... Let's turn to Psalm, Psalm 22, so you can get one of these types of poetry that is called the lament. And you know, what strikes me so is the absolute honesty of the lament. Sometimes we try not to let God know that we're disappointed or sad or upset with him. And then I ask you the question, how good are you at hiding your thoughts from God? Are you good at that? <laughs> you may think you're good at it. You may think you're good at it. My niece was just a preschooler. She had done something that disappointed my sister, her mother, and it was one we call like a preschool kind of sin. She'd been selfish, mistreated one of her friends that came over, and that night during the prayers, my sister was saying prayers with my niece, who's now graduated from college, but she was a preschooler then. And my sister, Jay, started confessing with Logan her sin, her preschool sin. God, help us to be good to our friends who come over to our house and help us to share and not be selfish. You, stop. Why are you telling him that? <laughs> why, why are you letting him know? That's what we do. He already knows. And so the psalmist knows that he knows. 
I'm not saying be disrespectful, but you can be honest. Oh, Lord, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the wounds of my groaning. Oh, my God, I cry by day, but thou did not answer. And by night, but I have no rest. And yet you are holy. And you are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. And thee our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you did deliver them. To thee they cried out and were delivered. And thee they trusted and were not disappointed. But I am a worm. I'm not a man. A reproach of men. I'm despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag the head saying, commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. And he goes on and on. God, you're so far away that first line of psalm 22 does it sound familiar to you my god my god why have you forsaken me it should sound familiar because the son of god uttered it on the cross my god my god why have you forsaken me there are also songs of thanksgiving that are happy songs or occasions. Turn over to Psalm 30. We have a happy song. This is the counterbalance to the complaint. Counterbalance to the complaint. Let's look at the first five verses. I will extol thee, O Lord, for thou hast lifted me up, and thou hast not let my enemies rejoice over me. O Lord my God, I cried to you for help, and you healed me. O Lord, thou hast brought up my soul from Sheol, from the dead. Thou hast kept me alive, that I should not go down into the pit. Sing praise to the Lord. You, his godly ones, and give thanks to his holy name, for his anger is but a moment, but his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may last for the night. I'm going to use the old translation, but joy comes in the morning. Now, I like those the best, don't you? He has trouble. He cries to God in a thanksgiving, praise psalm, and God answers him. There are a few love songs in the Bible. We find those. We won't turn to it for time's sake. Psalm 45, it's a royal marriage. They even sing about the king's beauty, and then they sing about the bride's beauty. And you know about the song of the songs, the best-known love song in the Bible. Another kind of poetry beside the complaint and the thanksgiving and the love songs is the liturgy. Now, when we do liturgy, we're probably as close to Old Testament worship, and I would think New Testament worship as you can get. It's when we talk back and forth. We did it today with responsive reading, and then my favorite at all, we did it with the choir. The choir started an anthem, and they were talking to us, and then Dan turned and let you talk back to the choir. That's just good worship. That's liturgy. It's when Israel worshiped together as a community in the temple of Jerusalem. Well, Psalm, example, Psalm 24, verses 3 through 6. They're coming to the temple. It's the entrance liturgy, and someone there at the gate cries out, Who may ascend to the hill of the Lord, and who may stand in his holy place? 
And their priest responds, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false, such is a generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, O God of Jacob. You see that? They knew what to do when they came to the temple. They come to the temple, they're there at the gates, they won't end, and they ask the question, can you let me in? Can I worship the Lord? Who gets in here to worship? We want to worship. And the priest shouts back, he knows what to say, clean hands and a pure heart, and I'll let you in. Beautiful, back and forth, worship liturgy. Well, how do we interpret these poems? How do we interpret them? One thing to remember is that the poem should be treated as a whole unit. If someone takes two verses of a psalm and makes a whole sermon about it, you need to read and make sure they use those two verses in the context of the movement of the psalm. I can pick two verses of any psalm and tell you way out of context, right? I can take just a sad part and not give you the part where God rescues at the end, right? So, Read the whole song and don't just focus on two verses. Another thing when you're reading this kind of poetry or the Psalms, you need to know that each Psalm kind of serves, well, there's some exceptions, but in the major way, each Psalm is its own literary context. The Psalms aren't in any neat order that necessarily go through the history of the life of Israel. And so the Psalm before it or after it may not relate all that much. And so it's not like Romans when we follow it from chapter 1 to chapter 16 and we stay with the context. We finished today. It felt good. We've been through the whole book. The Psalm's not quite like that. So probably the Psalm stands on its own like a different song in the songbook might relate, but might not relate as well. Another thing to do is to group these psalms into types. In other words, you might, we can give you the list, might want to read all the complaint psalms. If you're really way too happy one day, text me. I'll give you all the lament psalms, and you can read them and say, these have something alike. And how do I see them together? Or all the praise songs, or all the Zion psalms that are about Jerusalem, or all the royal psalms that are about the Davidic king. And then also remember, at the end of the day when we read these, that Christ is the new David, who fulfills all the things that the David of the psalms does not do. He plays the royal role that we needed to play in the Psalms. Read them in the context of whom it's attended. If it's an individual psalm, then it's best to apply it to your individual life. If it's a community psalm to the whole people of God, then apply it to the whole people of God. If it's a royal psalm, you might apply it to a leader. Find for whom the setting is written by the nature of the psalm. Is it a person? Is it a people of God? Is it a royal psalm? Who is it? And then, and then apply it to the individual or the community with the leadership, however the psalm was intended. Okay, Old Testament, we're out of time for tonight. We've got law, we've got if-then law, if you, then here's the results. We've got absolute law, thou shalt, thou shalt not. 
And we have narrative, and in that narrative, we all kind of little types that blend within. And also, we have poetry. We'll pick up some more as we go. The Psalms and poetry in various places. Let's pray. God, when we just talk about your word this way, realize how wonderfully written it truly is. From a riddle to a parable to a fable to a song, you touch our soul. Everywhere we turn, there is nothing that we might experience that your people have not already experienced with us. As you were with them, you're with us. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.